welcome to Everything Leftover, uh, our podcast on HBO's The Leftovers. My name is Justin Blizzard. I'm here with Keith Krepko, and uh, we're going to talk about The Leftovers, specifically episode six. Uh, before we do that, I did want to quickly say thank you to the people who have left us positive reviews on iTunes, and this time I have written their names down, uh, and they are KL Jacks 24 Mayhem 68 Jamie Fike, uh, Shuckster, who also hosts the Guilty Remnant podcast, who we've uh, talked with a little bit, uh, MD Mass, and the uh, comment that I just read today, or a review I just read today from a guy who calls himself Johnny Joe John. Yeah, and what I love about that one is I feel like he hit the character limit, but uh-huh. if he could, I feel like that name would still be going on. Like, <laughs> just repeating yeah that's true johnny john 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 John. (laughs) yeah but he uh left a a really nice review and i read that today and so i just wanted to say thank you um for taking the time out to do that and we also uh, i had a friend of mine whose name is dell who's been very supportive of the show and he's provided a lot of feedback uh on the website i just wanted to give him a shout out uh and say thanks for listening um and before we, the last thing I want to talk about before we get into the episode itself is I was one of the people. Christmas in August. Yeah, who received this mystery box from a group called The Watchers. So at like some point last week, um, the official Leftovers Twitter account tweeted at me and said something like, "We're." they tweeted at my personal uh, Twitter account and we're just like, uh, something like, we're watching you. I can't remember what it said. Um, and then they emailed me a link for a form to fill out my address and inf- contact information. They're just like, uh, I can't remember what they said. We're going to send you something, whatever they said. So I filled it out a couple days later. I got a box and, uh, it, it's, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a glossy plastic. It's already falling apart. First of all, well, I guess I shouldn't like, I, well, I'll just say it's already falling apart. <laughs> Uh, but anyways, it's like really nice. Um, but I opened it up and it's got like, what was the first thing? Oh, it had like a card on it that just was like, this is something from the watchers. It's a group that's calling themselves the watchers. I don't know if that's supposed to play into the show ultimately, but it is a group, an official group called the watchers. Uh, and they're just saying, uh, we've been watching you blah, 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 blah here's some stuff or whatever. And it's got like a dossier of information on me, like a guilty remnant file. And it had, uh, it had like a decal for the guilty remnant. So like, we are living reminders. They have some of your sorted past kind like, yeah. Like my sorted Twitter past. Like they had like my first tweet ever written down, (laughs) (laughs) which is like, you know, from a Katie Kirk interview. <laughs> you tweeted a Katie Kirk interview? Yeah, well, it was the thing about, like, Katie Kirk was was interviewing the she Queen of England. She was hot that time. Right? Oh, yeah, she was. Right? She was, and uh-huh. she said something like, like, Katie Kirk is literally interviewing the Queen of England, and she asks her some, oh, I can't even remember now, but she asks her something like, uh, if I if I tried to attack you right now, would you have me killed or something? It was just was like the stupidest question in the world. And that's all the tweet was. It was just like a transcript of that exchange. Um, anyways. I'll the, go back and check it out. 
Yeah, the one thing the one thing they did include that was really interesting is they gave me a cell phone, a burner, right? So just a prepaid phone. And so I've been getting text messages from I guess the watchers, but they're like quotes from Wayne or different things. Have you replied? No, I haven't. Own... I don't know if I don't know if I can. It may just be a one way deal. I don't know. Oh yeah. But one of the things they texted me was I've feel like it was a quote from this past episode um but i can't remember what it was exactly now but i'll say that all of that stuff is being tracked on the show's twitter so we created a twitter uh, a twitter account just for the for our website that's being used for the show currently so anything i receive any sort of text messages or anything i find throughout the week that i think is interesting or that keith's finds it thinks is interesting and for if you like tasteless jokes about gladys <laughs> then you <laughs> yeah. definitely want to follow this yeah twitter account yeah 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 so so follow us it's at brown blue white uh you can follow us there follow along with the show and i was going to try i tr- i really tried to live tweet the show but i just couldn't do it. i i couldn't like i couldn't concentrate on the show and try and take notes about the show and also try and live tweet yeah, I feel like if you do that, you have to go in almost saying, like, this first watch, I'm just going to kind of poke right. fun at it, yeah. have fun, and just do surface-level comments yeah. with the idea that I will go back later on. But it probably does ruin the first watch where yeah. if you're not focusing on the show, you might miss. Yeah, and considering you know how we're trying to get this out or done by the next day, it just doesn't – it's not that conducive. I just don't have much time to rewatch the the episode two more times or you know because the first time i watch it i'm taking notes i watch it a second time after sort of reading everyone's thoughts and just really collect my thoughts i just wouldn't have time to watch it again after that but uh like i said you can follow all that at brown blue white and you know we'll post stuff through there throughout the week uh but with that being said let's get into episode six titled guest uh and it's a nora durst focused episode so just uh, like her brother's episode, Matt, we are now uh, getting an episode focused on, on Nora. And from everything I've heard or read, I believe that those are the only two POV episodes, right? So the rest are all. Do you, I wonder when they decided which one to be POV, if they decided to link them because they're siblings. Yeah. Or if they were like, these are the two characters that deserve POV because... Nora is an interesting choice in the sense that she was a fringe character, mm-hmm. you know, kind of up until episode six. She's she's always appeared, but she has never really been the, the focal point yeah. of her episode. She's always been kind of tangential. She's kind of been like the boogeyman a little bit, right? Because everyone knows who she is and everyone kind of whispers about her. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I, I think she's a perfect candidate for a POV, but it's interesting that they are siblings. Yeah. Uh, so the show opens with, well, I guess the show actually opened with the loved ones commercial, right? Did you see that? Yep. Okay. Because when I watched it, the se- I watched it the second time in HBO Go, and they didn't play that beforehand. Really? Mm-hmm. What? Yeah, it just started straight with Nora and the prostitute. I mean, I, I was going to, I was going to say like, ask you a question about it. Yeah. But I feel like you telling me that HBO Go d- didn't use it makes me feel like. Well, I guess it's not meaningful. Yeah, I, I guess who cares? <laughs> yeah. So the show opens with Nora calling a prostitute. Um, and, 
your first I, I don't think your I don't think your first thought is like, oh man, Nora's like calling a prostitute to have sex with a prostitute, but at the same time right. you're like not really sure what to think. Uh, and then she uh, she ends up asking her to to shoot her. Uh, but for me, it kind of established what the majority of this show was about, and I think maybe what the majority of Nora's character is about. And it's kind of that things are different than what they appear. Yeah. Um, I don't really have a better way to say it than that, but you you sort of get this up to this point. Nora's been kind of a cold character you know what i mean maybe standoffish or like i said a little bit of a boogeyman everyone you know is kind of afraid of her or is sort of standoffish um but she's a lot more i think she's she ends up being a lot more complex than just this sort of like sad grieving woman right yeah and that also i think that also speaks to the loved ones commercial right you know very it's sort of very obvious you've got a figure as they call it representing a real life body or whatever um but something else uh that i think plays into that is the uh the the when she goes grocery shopping right and she's she's buying all of the things that her family would buy or that she would buy normally for her family and she's doing it on i guess an arbitrary schedule of when she would think her family would eat them. Would eat it. That honestly, that scene was a little overburdened for me yeah. with with symbol with questions like that. Yeah, like uh, oh, two weeks. You know, they would have you know already finished this Lucky Charms box. Yeah, so it's it, it's, new, it's a bit it's a bit one. contrived. It's a bit yeah. it's I like we we were talking about a little bit before. It it to me it felt like a writer's version of how somebody would grieve. Right. You know, instead of, I feel like the true to life version of that would just be like her having a three year old box of unopened lucky charms on her shelf because she couldn't bring herself to go grocery shopping anymore. You know what I mean? Right. Like, like, I mean, how would you feel if every two weeks you went and rebought all the favorite foods of your children? Wouldn't that kind of, well, I guess, I and guess I, that's, that's kind, kind of the point. I guess that's kind of the point that she wants to reopen those wounds, kind of feel that, feel that pain, you know, keep it alive and keep that's it true. fresh. Um, but I did, I did feel like I couldn't help but think, you know, does she not drink milk anymore? <laughs> like right. that was a full gallon of milk. Well, to be fair though, you are one of the only adults I know that drinks milk. Are you serious? Yes, like I don't think there are a lot of adults that drink milk. That's an, that's impossible. Can you name another adult besides yourself that drinks milk? And I I, I, I quoted don't. I quoted Ralph Wiggum. I did say impossible. <laughs> if anybody listens to this and thinks, do you say impossible? I said yes. It's Ralph Wiggum. But no, I I mean I I categorically reject that, and I think our vibrant right. and numerous listenerhood will uh, come to my defense. Sure. We'll see. I mean, you know, I, I think I do think it's a fair point regardless, but I'm just saying the milk thing is not a hang up for me because I see a gallon of milk and I think that could easily sit in my refrigerator for two weeks and not be drank if it, if it weren't for my kids. I think what is my cleanest, largest glass <laughs> that I can pour that milk right. into? Do I need yeah. to clean 
a large cup. That's the first thing that comes through my mind. Right. All right. Uh, so uh, later on, Nora's, Nora's at a conference, and we'll talk about this stuff a little bit later on, but just to speak to the idea of um, sort of deception and, and things are not as they seem, she ends up um, being a guest at the conference, right? Somebody steals her badge. badge. She becomes a guest, and she starts getting treated differently by everyone around her because she's no longer identified as this woman who's lost all of her family, right? So she's right. starting to see a little bit how she is starting to see a little bit how people view the departure, and we are also getting to see that as well, right? And I I know that was a big point for you, um, yeah. But it was it was it was kind of refreshing, right? Oh, it was. I mean. You know, not until I saw it, excuse me, did I realize how badly the show needed that trip down to Florida, right? That's where she was going. Um, Well, I think the conference was in New York City, right? Wasn't it? Because I feel like she was like, I'm going to Florida. No, but she said said something because she was talking to Kevin and she was like, I've got this conference to go to in New York City, but I was thinking about just going to Miami instead or something like that. Oh yeah. Okay. And let me let me say too what confused me was in the book she just goes to Florida. Oh, okay. With Kevin. Yeah. Um so yeah, that got jumbled in my mind. I couldn't remember. Okay, so New York City. That makes it even better because I feel like what I wanted was and what I've been calling for is something to contrast Mapleton against. And not just Mapleton, but even the characters themselves. Yeah. I want to see Kevin before the departure so I can contrast this Kevin with that Kevin. Right. You know, was he just as furious about missing bagels and, you yeah. know, like everything that he's furious about nowadays? Right. Or was he a different man? And uh, what I loved about that trip was we finally got to contrast not only Mapleton against a larger city, what maybe new york city looks like day in day out with those protesters and truthers and we're going to talk about that later on but you also got to see nora contrasted against like you said having her lose her badge is such a brilliant kind of narrative move because you get to see her slow realization of how she looks Mm -hmm. and you realize that a lot of people in mapleton they don't have that contrast any more than we do yeah. watching the show. And that was something that I think was good that I realized they know what they're doing in creating this show. And when they need to contrast their character, I think they did it beautifully in this, in this episode. Yeah. So for me, that whole conference, even though I don't really know what the conference was about fully, yeah. um, it totally worked for me in terms of what they were doing with the characters and how they were advancing their their theme forward, you know, even further, especially with with Nora and, and the departure. Yeah, yeah, I, I really like the, um, and I think it's I think it's a, a, I think they handle it really well because there's going to be a huge faction of people, especially when you know only two percent has departed. There's going to be a huge faction of people who aren't immediately affected by that and they're going to at some point they're going to feel like 
can everyone just sort of get over this and move on? Or exactly. they're going to be a little bitter or jaded about it. And no one's going to say that in Mapleton, which is a small, close-knit community. Right. Because people like Nora are right there, yeah. you know, and people know Nora. But, yeah, again, in a big city, you don't know people as intimately. So I think it's a lot – I think those feelings would be a lot more prevalent. And you see that even in this episode – and I really like that. Yeah. Uh, and someone, she, she meets a guy at the conference uh, named Marcus. And Marcus is just like an unlikable creep from the from the moment he is on screen. Like, I right. thought the, the introduction to his character was so strange because as soon as he's on screen, it's like, do you want to know what I do? It just is like, it seems so like weird and unnatural. You know, but I guess it fits for his character. I felt like he stepped out of like an eighties movie, like yeah, right, like That's ski exactly patrol, right. yeah, like one of the uh, <laughs> like jock, you know, yeah. skiers in yeah. this like eighties film, and then immediately came walking into this set and just brought that same attitude. Yeah, yeah, and so at some the point, same hair. At some point, you know, they she goes she she follows them up to. Uh, she follows them up to uh, their party, and Marcus, uh, after revealing that he's a salesman for the loved ones company, he's selling these imitation uh, figures. He asks her um, if he was so if he's soulless, and I was really expected her to just be like yes, right? Because right. he is soul. He seems pretty soulless. Yeah, well, I mean, he's a he's a salesman, you know, and so I think that there's a there's a function of what he's doing that anybody who is involved in sales is going to do. And I don't think it matters if you're if you're selling cars or if you're selling medical equipment or, you know, some kind of life saving, you know, prescription drug. Yeah, I think the heart of salespeople is, you know, this kind of tactic that would make any salesperson feel like they don't have a soul yeah you could be selling the world's most amazing uh advancement in medicine and i think still feel like kind of a a shell salesman you know because you're just you're, you're you're trying to sell people on an idea that maybe they don't fully understand yeah you know and i guess i'm not I guess I, I, I am immediately retracting, not life-saving. I guess if I'm selling the cure for cancer, I'm going to feel pretty good about myself. Right. But I think that you could be selling a product that some people probably look to that dummy as a real way to relieve their pain. And that was something else that I thought was interesting about this episode is showing how people get relief from from their pain and is one way right or one way wrong, you know, like... They may, he may have actually done good for some people, Yeah, you know, but at the same time in, in just, you you look at it just a little differently and he's a snake oil salesman, you right. know? And so it's such a fine line. So, okay. I, I immediately retract all the things I said about the, the best salesman. If you're, if you're selling a good product that that's different, but if you're selling this kind of product, that is this gray area, right. you're making money off of it. Maybe helping some people, but there's a lot to question. You can right. poke a lot of holes through it. Uh, you'd feel pretty soulless. And and that um, that all of that of what you just said is what made me feel like 
maybe they were trying to make, and maybe this is just the experience I'm pulling from, but I felt like they were maybe trying to make a correlation or maybe just sort of a light connection to the housing crisis. Hmm. You know what I mean? Because that's a lot of like a lot of, I, I feel like it just is the same environment where you have a lot of people who are selling something that they don't necessarily believe in yeah. just to make a massive amount of profit. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's essentially what the housing crisis was or yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I could see that, but again, I feel like I I could put up a little fight for Marcus. That don't you dare. That he is doing some good potentially, you know. Yeah, I guess. And uh, and and that's the thing too. Like I don't. Well, I you know unless they get into the financial side of it of like how they're financing these people's purchases, like forty that you have to be in pretty good standing yeah. to pay forty thousand dollars for something and, and and that's the problem with it that that's where it all falls apart yeah you know is is that price point now if they were making those and selling them like at cost like it's like no this helps people move on this right. is we believe in this product so we are just trying to help people move on that's one thing but forty thousand dollars seems a bit you know extreme um but yeah, I, I kind of felt like I just waited for Nora when she was like, yes, you have a soul to be like, comment on the state of that soul, though. Yeah. Like, yeah, but it's not a good one, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So like you, yeah, I was waiting for a second half to that statement, but never came. Nora. Yeah. She just started making out with her, with the loved one instead, with the bereavement figure. And, and, and I know that we didn't want to spend a lot of time on this, but it just made me think, too, that maybe... In, in her act of saying yes to him, you know, she's and kissing, making out with that doll, pretty much the figure afterwards. She's kind of turning the tables on Marcus and kind of showing him what he's doing to other people. Number one, he's giving them a false, you know, kind of hope. Yeah. And and so she is in turn giving him a false hope in himself by saying, yeah, you have a soul. When really she could have easily said no, and that would have fit. And then when he wants to kiss her, being like, "All right, I'll kiss you," and yeah. then making out with the doll. It seems like maybe she's she's underscoring to him what what he does to other people. Yeah, um, yeah, and that was something we didn't even mention is that not only is he kind of a sleazy salesperson, he is also like completely ready at the drop of a hat to just cheat on his wife <laughs> like he says doesn't she either ask she's like you're married right And he's like yep but i still want to kiss, you. kiss she's you like he does not care at all so he's a little bit of a of a he's a little bit he's a little bit of a creep yeah uh something else at the at the conference is so we mentioned earlier that someone has taken Nora's badge uh so not only is nora you know able to sort of view the world differently or have the world view her differently she's there's a very real other part or other half of that where where people are viewing somebody else as her basically right um and so this person shows up on the panel and uh when she's outed by nora she uh she uh starts to she she basically is a truther right right and she starts rambling about a, a government conspiracy you're all asleep. You're Something all asleep. Like They're yeah. taking your 
uh, benefits questions and then just sending them to an incinerator in Tennessee or something, which is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, reminiscent of the incinerator at the end of last episode. Yeah. I, I want to be like, I wonder if her mind would be blown if you go, uh, you're close lady. And maybe she is right. But be like, <laughs> yeah. you know what they are doing with incinerators? <laughs> yeah. It's a little bit worse than paperwork. <laughs> a little worse than paperwork out there. Yeah. Um, but I actually really liked that they're introducing I really liked that with this woman they're kind of or with this episode as a whole um outside of maybe the Wayne stuff they're moving not and not necessarily moving away from the biblical stuff but they're introducing other aspects to the um departure right so instead of just being so heavily focused on the potential of a spiritual or religious rapture they're now sort of saying look there are these other schools of thought out there yeah like uh like these truthers which i i felt like could also potentially be a 911 analogy you know and and a lot of these are are loose or sort of you know i'm not saying that it's some sort of broad analogy that the show is working up to it just is sort of you know something that we pull from from our popular culture i think yeah i mean they they're obviously you know addressing conspiracy theorists yeah. and what is one of the most prevalent conspiracy theories even today you know, here we are over a decade removed still 911 is is a hotbed yeah of uh of conspiracy theorists so i don't think you're off base in drawing that parallel yeah um so after the conference so uh, th- so that and 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 uh nora sort of outing the truther is the first in a series of two or three events that leads her um, to, or I guess following that, she then runs into the author who this sort of conference is centered around, I guess. Mm -hmm. And um, the author who's written a book because he lost four people, although we don't know who, who those people were. And Nora does call that into question later or during their conversation. Yeah. Um, but again, it, it you start you start to it it raises this question of is this guy who he says he is, you know, is he how he's presenting himself, um. And Nora really sort of calls him out on that, um, because. You know she sees it, she's she's has a similar experience to him, and she is only seeing bleakness and darkness and no path forward whereas he seems to have like gleefully moved on right like he doesn't really seem or or construct (gasps) he's moved on in a way that speaks to a constructive future yeah i may have presented that a little cynically but (laughs) right yeah yeah well, I mean, you're you're reacting like Nora is. Yeah, yeah, and and but but to that point, something that I thought was interesting was a question that he raised, and he says something along the lines of, "If my eight year old can find happiness, why can't the rest of us?" Right. And I thought that was an interesting question, and I thought that it could introduce an interesting aspect to sort of grief and the departure, where there seems to be, you know, there are a lot of horror stories out in the world about people losing losing their kids or losing whatever. And there seems to be, you know, people who experience that and can constructively move on. And there are people who experience that and maybe like Nora just cannot, can never get over it. Right. And so I'd be interested if they explore that. Right. Yeah. Um, 
you know, it, it seems like at this point, all we've gotten is nobody can move on, you know, but then when we do get a, uh, this author who potentially has moved on, he's presented as kind of a phony and he seems kind of phony, right? I mean, I think that's how he's acted a little bit. Well, yeah. And I think that there's something just like one of the characters says in the party scene with Nora, where he's like, I never read a book that comes in a tote bag. And you do have that sense, too, of this man's grief, however genuine, is still something that he signed off on being in a tote bag. Right. And can I just say very quickly that the guy who says that line looks exactly like somebody who would read a book from a tote tote bag. bag. Like that's like a that's like a like a 20 year old like college dudes line. Right. Or something like that. And this guy is like mid 40s. balding like people like that are building their worldview around (laughs) books and tote bags they're the ones going to conferences waiting for the next piece of their uh, psyche to be handed yeah like marcus should have said that if anybody right it just seemed like a weird line coming from that guy well yeah and i think there's something too like isn't he i remember him like being on the floor like in the process of rolling back with two women (laughs) <laughs> like yeah he's, also, no. well, he's yeah he's he's hooking up with that uh indian girl the whole time right yeah so he's uh he's just breaking down all sorts of stereotypes i guess so he's a cool dude he's, he's a, a par- cool party dude. animal <laughs> uh and so her you know the 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 truther she then um or no she then goes to the bar talks to the author right after she blows up with the author she or tom noonan grabs her says let me tell you what this guy is actually about and he takes her to meet holy wayne right the guy who's been gone for a couple episodes um and holy wayne is someone else who we've been sort of presented this uh this view of um he seems a little I guess up until this phony. point, yeah, but he seems a little funny, phony, although I guess we don't really know what to think because he hasn't been, you know, outright disproven or anything. You've just sort of, his whole conceit seems phony, right? Right. But then apparently he seems to really genuinely help Nora, right? By the end of this episode, you think at least. And he helped that senator. And he helped the senator too. Early. And and he helped the author, right? And that's what Apparently. the whole thing was about. So we're sort of given this different view of um, Wayne, right? So, and and uh, you know, what do you make of that? Like, I know you have written down here that Nora and Wayne never meet in the book. Yeah, I wanted to make that make that point, and I find that uh, an interesting distinction in what they're doing with Nora's character. And I guess for anybody who's read the book, you kind of know what I'm talking about in the, in the huge shift that this uh, show has taken with Nora now and with her character uh, being able to move on from her grief, mm-hmm. but it does make me wonder. <clears throat> and I guess I'm going to answer your question with another question. Do you feel like the benefits that Holy Wayne provides, which have been clearly established. Do you feel like they are now for all time? Or do you feel like it's like a chiropractor where if you are not getting regular contact from Mm. Wayne, that that grief is going to come back on a 
in, in a huge way. And I wanted to make the distinction that they do not meet in the book. So I don't know the answer yeah. to that question. Um, but I wanted to get your, your take on that, what your sense is. Yeah, I guess forward. I really didn't think about, I didn't think about that aspect of it. The idea that if it truly is sort of a scam, it, there would have to be some component to it like that, right? A sort of a component of like, you know, you have to come back so I can keep making money basically. Right. Like, yeah, one hug does not <coughs> solve it all. Yeah. You know, that there needs to be like, I feel like there needs to be like a 12 hug program with, <laughs> with Holy Wayne for complete, you know, uh, emotional. Yeah. Debaggage. But even that is assuming that, the hug actually doesn't. I mean, we don't actually think that his hug is taking people's pain away, right? It has to be some kind of basically placebo effect. Well, this this again goes back to, and I guess a quick wild theorizing on my part. Um, this kind of goes back to, and I did not get to read the Vox article this week, but <clears throat> uh, Brandon has been making the point in earlier articles comparing a lot of characters, including Holy Wayne to prophets. Mm -hmm. And then I also thought of a Bible verse uh, that I, I have not seen in, in the literature um, a few weeks ago. And I didn't mention it on here. I mentioned it to uh, one of our commenters on Reddit, I think mm -hmm. where there's a, a verse in acts. I believe it is where they talk about the end times and in it, it basically says, you know, your young uh, men will prophesy and see visions and your old men will dream dreams. And I think we've had both of those components happening in this show. Mm -hmm. So again, it kind of goes back to the question of how religious a reality is the show taking place in <clears throat> is Holy Wayne potentially somebody who has been gifted with a supernatural power that fits in the context of this supernatural world that they are living in. Yeah. Or is he a fraud and a sham that is just creating such a heightened emotion beforehand, which he does. He doesn't just hug Nora. He diagnoses Nora. Right. And he creates in Nora. He stirs up every emotion that she could have mm -hmm. and then he hugs her so i guess you could argue that that may be the um the the trickery of his you know kind of uh routine is that he <laughs> heightens your emotion and then hugs you so when you feel better you associate it with the hug instead of like oh no that man just kind of whipped you up into an emotional lather yeah but with what he was saying he was accurately diagnosing her that's what i was going to say yeah that's exactly right he's he's not just and he's not just speaking in you know gen generalities like you would expect with like a psychic or something exactly he's like getting into it he's, like ca he's, he's calling her out he knows her nitty and gritty basically so it's like i don't like the way you phrase that but i agree <laughs> yeah it's like i, I don't know it. what to make of it you know yeah it, it, look it's either one supernatural explanation or another. Yeah. You know, it's like six in one, half a dozen in, in the other. You know, Holy Wayne is either absolutely hugging people's pain away or he's able to have some sort of insight into people mm -hmm. uh, and and diagnose them and then hug them. Yeah. 
Um, I'm glad he didn't get naked this time. <laughs> yeah, well, that's something something that we've both had an issue in his previous appearances is his acting. Did you feel like it was any better at all? Or Well, I, I feel like I can't remember where if we te- I texted this to you or whatever, but I did feel like I don't know if I'm just getting acclimated to a man acting mm-hmm. at his you know, 11 mm-hmm. decibel level right. or if he's getting more nuanced, but you know, and I was going to save this for straight observations and and then I, I literally took it off because it, it literally does not deserve to be talked about, <laughs> uh-huh. but as an analogy for what we're talking about with Holy Wayne, this is all I have to say in my notes on the episode. One of the notes that I just mindlessly wrote down uh, is the P in Holy Wayne's hope blew Norris head hair back. <laughs> when he says the word hope uh-huh. to her, you see Nor. Yeah. It's like somebody turned on a fan <laughs> and half of Nora's hair literally blows back yeah. off of her head. And I'm like, this guy is going for yeah. it. Uh, and I was just like, you know, as Nora, the actress... Number one, I was like, how'd she keep a straight face? Right. And number two, I'm like, is she internally rolling her eyes when he gets to his well, hope? <laughs> that's the thing that I was going to say that I wanted to comment about is I do think that his acting is a little bit better, but I cannot get over the ridiculousness of his like Christ-like pose that he goes into when he's getting ready to hug somebody, right? Like, like, at, like, like, look at Christ crucified on the cross and imagine that he's actually getting ready to hug somebody, and that's what <laughs> Holy Wayne is doing, and it just looks so ridiculous, right? And so I'm thinking, like, how is um her name's Carrie Coon that plays Nora, right? How is she standing there, like, getting so emotional? looking straight at Holy Wayne, who's like limply holding his arms out and like closing it. It just is so like, like, you know, like that takes a lot of talent on her end to hold that up. You know she what I mean? She deserves an Emmy. Yeah, totally. Give it to her. Um, And then the last thing I want to say about Wayne, and you had mentioned this a little bit was the, was the Bible aspect of it. And his, his line where he says, for whoever is joined with all the living, there is hope, and then blows her hair back. (laughs) Uh, Surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. And that is from Ecclesiastes. So he is familiar with the Bible, right? He knows his biblical references, at least. So So do a lot of cult leaders. Right. Yeah, there you go. Take nothing. Take it for what it is. Um, So that, for me, kind of wraps it up in terms of what I felt like were the uh, dis- the 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 deception aspect of the episode. You know, I mean, there's a lot of little things, but I felt like yeah. those were kind of the major things. Um, so we'll move on to some of the other major things from the episode. And one of the things you had written down was the party itself. Yeah. And the party is kind of, I think, it, either purposefully or not, it's mirroring the teenagers' party, right, from the first episode. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I, I I thought that too, um, and I guess. You know, a few things that stuck out to me that I guess I'll just touch on quickly and you can kind of pick up on what you want, um, if if anything. Number one, one of our listeners uh, 
Zeus mm-hmm. uh, emailed me and brought up kind of, you know, he was applying his own kind of psychology in reaction to the show. Mm-hmm. And it, it's dangerous to do that. And some shows, I think, want you to do that. Mm-hmm. And other shows, I don't think they want you to do that. Yeah. I think they're like, look, we're creating these characters. Don't project yourself in the show. Right. Just enjoy the show, yeah. you know? Um, Breaking Bad is maybe a good example. Like (laughs) these guys are on rails. They're headed towards a destination. Don't sit there and be like, oh, if I was selling meth, I would, I totally wouldn't (laughs) use the camper again, you know? Yeah. Um, But what what he said was he feels like it's kind of interesting that the show seems to be focusing a lot on the debauched reactions that people are having Mm -hmm. to the departure and you don't see a lot of, even in New York, or you know, if you think about the Guilty Remnant as a group of people who are having an extreme reaction to it, uh, to the departure, you don't see a lot of people that are running seemingly to whether it is a religious understanding mm-hmm. or some kind of convent where it's like, look, people, we apparently, somebody's pissed off up there. And we need to keep our heads down. Right. We need to not kill people. We need to just calm down. And we just need to like not act out. Yeah. You know, let's just be quiet. And and you don't see a lot of people doing that. And so he was he was kind of bringing up that. I'm, I'm totally paraphrasing uh, what he was saying. But I wanted to know what you thought about maybe this party scene as another. The, the teen party is mm-hmm. debauchery these adults are just they're just giving themselves over like this is all we have left Mm -hmm. and i'm like do you think that this show is just trying to you know hit their quota of like edgy content for hbo do you think they're trying to make a realistic representation do you think they have any um kind of responsibility to try and portray a realistic expectation or, or, or reaction to this yeah i think it's hard to i think it's hard to depict something of that scope in a party scene you know what i mean like the teenagers partying just feels like teenagers partying you know right. what I mean? like it doesn't feel particularly nihilistic to me it doesn't feel i mean it's clearly over the top because they're playing this like insane iphone game like sexual iphone yeah. game or whatever but you know, like previously, the the teenagers don't feel very nihilistic to me. They just kind right. of feel like amped up teenagers. Right. And I would say the same for this party scene where because we don't know any of these people and we only are introduced to them for a two to three minute long party scene. It just feels like like I have this could very well be these like like, for example, I today I watched um this it's like a six minute long documentary on vice right on YouTube. They do this, this series called vice profiles and they, the profile is called the bros of fracking. And it just followed around this um, guy who's a directional driller. Um, who's making like a ton of money, like way more money than he ever thought he would make in his life. And he works 20 days and he's off 10 days. And like for those 10 days, Every single time he just flies out to Vegas, blows a bunch of money, goes crazy, and then goes back to work. And it's like the stuff he's doing is no different or, or worse than what the people in this party scene are doing. Yeah. 
So it's like, so I mean, do you think the show needs to amp up the debauchery? Then would you say? I don't like, think so. I think it just is difficult to, to. I, I think it's difficult to say what they're doing. One, I, I think it's difficult to say that they're doing this because of the departure, because we're not because we don't know these. Like you can say that about Nora because at this point we've now spent an entire episode with Nora. We've seen her in previous episodes, but it's like to meet someone and then have their scene be over two minutes later and then try and figure out why are they doing this? Why are they doing this? Why are they partying like this? Like Marcus seems like a guy who would just party like that regardless. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, I guess I feel like then, then what you're saying, it's kind of making me miss the apocalyptic mushroom cloud that you think would be hovering over, you know, you say like they're not doing this because of the departure, but in one sense, anything they do is because of, the departure their whole sure. business is based around the departure these guys like the like the fracking guy are getting potentially rich yeah off of the grief of these people and they have contempt for the people like that one lady who makes the comment of like how many times do i have to say i'm so sorry to these people you know at one point can't we just move on yeah like that's her that's her feeling about it and i feel like it should inform what they're saying. Like we should be watching scenes like that. I feel like, and be thinking like, yeah, these people are, this is a symptom of the departure. Do you feel like it should, you should have that feeling or do you think like, no, just have a party scene. And, and I'm sure that's what they're doing. I'm sure if you asked any of the writers or whatever, and, and a lot of people agree, that's what they're doing. I just, I don't find it compelling either way. Well, I know I kind of agree with you. I feel like I, I agree that I think that that's what they think they're doing. Right. But I would say then then they need to amp it up a bit. You know, like yeah. they did pop some pills in there. We don't know what that was. So, you know, but yeah, I guess I'd rather see a distinction then. And the, and the kids, they do have the burning, which I thought was good. Like one of the yeah. options just like burn like. But even then, kids. like like people brand themselves all the time. Yeah. Like that's like branding yourself. Look, maybe it's a culture thing or whatever. To me, branding yourself is crazy, right? But they people do that now. Well, Damon Lindelof, season two, <laughs> we we may not write a whole episode, but we can write your party scenes. We we will yeah. give them the feel of an apocalyptic right. event. Yeah, what we put in there. <laughs> Talk about debauchery. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, what was your last birthday party there will be no question of what we're going for after people see our party (laughs) scenes it'll be the gladys stoning scene of parties (laughs) that is that is our party scene right boo people stoning each other ruined it and and you you can't give the people the the punchline at the end yeah that's true way to way to spoil it well guess what now i just have to one-up myself (laughs) Right? So now imagine that. Take it to 11 like Holy Wayne. We'll have the Holy Wayne of party scenes. There we go. Um, another thing that uh, this was actually in the AV article. And I just thought it was an interesting observation. I don't know how much depth there is to it. But the, we've had the two POV episodes. And they follow Matt and Nora who are brothers. Brother and sisters. Their family. Um, and they're both about change. They're both about how, but the thing that it, I don't think they commented on is that 
during this episode, you're seeing Nora's change, right? You very definitively see it when she hugs Wayne or whatever, and then it cuts to her in the grocery store. Yeah. But everything is sort of building up to that. In Matt's episode, you don't see his change, right? All you get, you get a, that, that show ends with the buildup. And then the next thing you see from Matt, he seems like a, like a pretty well-adjusted, totally different a, guy. applause in his house. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, uh, I thought that was interesting. Um, but I didn't really know if there was anything. It's just maybe one of those like interesting correlations, right? Yeah. And, and they were doing different things. I feel like Matt's was not, not only narratively, obviously chronologically speaking, he had to go before Nora, duh, mm. but it fit what they were doing with his episode because I feel like up until then you still weren't sure and you needed a, an episode that was more about kind of telling almost like a short story that maybe didn't speak as much to his character's change or, you know, metamorphosis moving forward. I mean, you have him losing his church and that's a big event, but you do have a much more self-contained story with a beginning and an end. And with Nora's, you have more of a character shifting and changing where now she's a completely different person and i I feel like that's not inherently as exciting or interesting as a as an episode of television as matt's is if you're if you're just trying to figure this show out Mm -hmm. you know so i feel like maybe matt's was still you know their larger purpose may not have been story-wise it may have been like okay we need to hook some viewers like they just need an hour of really good television that's exciting um and so they didn't focus as much on Matt as, as they did on Nora on his character changing. Yeah. Um, and then question 21 is something you wanted to talk about. Question, question 121. 121. And yeah. the question was, do you believe the departed is in a better place now? Right. And the whole issue was that, um, Nora was getting all false positives or at least some false positives. Whereas everyone else, she's get, they're getting some yeses, some nos. Nora's getting all yeses across the board universally. Right. So what's the deal? Yeah. And, and I read on the AV article uh, kind of theorizing why why she would be getting the, the false positives. And I felt like, it, you know, for, for me, it's, it's kind of clearly, you know, with her boss who was asking, are you know, basically, are you talking to these people beforehand? Right. You know, because... If you're answering that question to a lady who just lost her whole family, whether you believe or not that your family's in a better place, you don't really want to say no mm-hmm. to her. Right. You know, and so that's why people, you know, are saying yes, because they know Nora's story. Right. And so that's why I think she's she's getting the. But she also denies that. Right. She vehemently denies that when he brings. Exactly. It up. Exactly. But, but I think he's also saying like, you know, again. She seems to be working in Mapleton. Well, exactly. So she has a <laughs> so reputation. You have a right. reputation. I mean, it's not like these people don't know your story. So yeah, that's why people are giving you that that false positive, which makes it interesting at the end. I wanted to know where was that lady located? You know, mm-hmm. that that she was interviewing. I that's guess back true. in Mapleton, yeah. which did she go farther away that time? You know, and and I guess what the show is implying is that her psychological baggage was so evident to people yeah. 
that she didn't have to say anything. They knew right. if I say no, uh, it's going to destroy this this lady. Yeah, which I which I thought was interesting. Um, yeah, I, I guess I guess this kind of ties into it. But did you were you surprised at how kind of fragile Nora was in this episode based on what we saw? Like, cause she, cause we didn't really know her before this episode very well. See, I, I had read that presented somewhere else. I can't remember. Maybe I saw, but I didn't think she was that particularly fragile. Like, but I but, like Nora a lot. And I thought she, you know, I thought she had, she, she's got some quirks that have been, you know, probably multiplied because of the event or whatever, but. I didn't. I didn't really see her as being like she stands up for herself every chance she gets. She doesn't back down from anything. Right. So. So then why, you know, then why would they imply that her baggage was so evident that people like, oh, we can't say no to this yeah. lady. Yeah, I guess I would just say there's a difference between being fragile and being. I don't know. I mean, you, I mean, it, even in the show itself, you could you could tell just from her performance or how she carried herself that she was dealing with something. But I wouldn't necessarily call that to me being fragile is sort of being, you know, maybe like subservient to people or just being like not speaking up for yourself or just sort of like letting people tell you what to do. That's is more or less what I see as being fragile or, you know, just not being able to deal with interactions which i guess there's a little bit of or or just psychologically fragile you know that she may look and seem tough on the outside but you know if you bring up her family yeah she could just shatter yeah you know yeah i guess that i mean and that's that is what that's what happens with wayne but for everyone else Wayne sees through it right everyone else she seems to more or less hold her ground like with the author you know what i mean like she runs him out of the bar right um yeah so oh the and we'll, we'll we'll close the main section with just overall impressions how did you feel about the episode uh i again i thought this episode was uh really really good really strong um i'm i'm really still kind of thinking about it and you know if we and i know that we don't rank the episodes but in my mind it's easy for me to just jump to that yeah i mean i would put this uh, uh right along with Matt's yeah you know right this point maybe a little below Matt's but um but that 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 could change um so I I really liked it um I I thought the acting was great and I just wanted to say really quickly just as you know we we don't talk about kind of the nuts and bolts of of the show and storytelling but I think this was the best written episode Mm -hmm. I love the way that they teased you know, question one twenty one out to mm-hmm. to the end. Uh, that didn't feel frustrating to me. I even paused a few times to see if I could read. You know what was shaded out, mm-hmm. and so they they purposefully obscured it. And I I thought that was fine. I I had a lot more to be invested in mm-hmm. than needing to know right that moment. Like what was the stupid question? You know, <laughs> um, and so I thought it was you know wholly successful and you know, wonderfully acted. Um, so just as a, as a narrative, I think it's probably their, their strongest episode in terms of writing and construction. Yeah. Yeah. I I would agree. I really liked it a lot. And I think, um, just like Matt's episode, um, 
you get a feel for, I mean, you know, Matt's episode is great. It's because it's well-written. I feel like there's a, a little bit, there's a lot more contrivances in that episode than this one. Yeah. But at the same time, <coughs> you get a great performance from um, Christopher Eccleston. Yeah. And you end up just loving that character so much more after that episode, even though he's not like a like of that likable of a character. You know what I mean? He's just so much more relatable. And I feel like this episode is even more so uh, follows that path just because Nora Durst, I feel like is actually a likable. Right. You can get behind sympathetic character. I mean, there are aspects of Matt that are sympathetic, but you know, he's calling people out. Right. There are other aspects that are kind of like, eh, you know, like stop doing that, buddy. Like, get a haircut. <laughs> yeah, yeah, get a haircut. Yeah, but um, yeah, I mean, Carrie Coon's performance is is awesome. Like you said, it's just written so well, and her performance is so great. Yeah. Um, and I and it seems like especially with what they're dealing with and how it's written, it could be it would be very easy for it to be for it to not be great. You know what I mean? Yeah, but I feel like she handles it so well. Yep, I agree. So I really like this episode a lot. Um, with that, we will move into our leftover observations, just random things that we observed during the episode that we could not find a place for in the larger discussion. Um, and the first thing that I had written down is something that we've talked about before with the guilty remnant. And it appears that just everyone on the show is extremely wasteful, right? Oh, man. Like the GR writing real big on notepads, wasting paper. And now you've got Nora throwing out perfectly good food, unopened food. Did she have to throw it away, too? She couldn't just drop it off. Exactly. Just go donate it to somebody. Donate it. Yeah. I mean, come on, lady. That's just. um, So maybe. And then so maybe they're making a correlation to like how wasteful we are, right? I don't think they are, but it just is like, it's just is like, it's weird that this thing is like constantly popping up, right? It's not just like a, I mean, it, uh, some of it is a little bit of a joke, but at the same time, it's just like, they are being really wasteful. What if, with the whole show, like at the end of however many seasons <coughs> they go for, they have like a, um, an inconvenient truth title sequence at the end, like <laughs> like uh, a Melissa Etheridge song. Yeah, no, like at the end of um, the other guys. The other guys, yeah. It's like you want, and then at the very end, you're just like, wait a minute, it was about this. It's about, what if it's it about really, corporate greed the whole time. <laughs> what if this really is all about global warming? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess that could make sense. Um, and then another reoccurring theme that I had written down is we get more incompetent employees to add yep. to our incompetent employees list. Yep. And the the one that really got me was, um, and I didn't really notice it until the second time I watched it. I mean, I noticed it the first time, but I didn't really think anything of it. But when Nora walks in on her boss, or walks into her boss's office, he is dealing with a very disgruntled customer. Yes. But he has like a mouthful of food. Yes. What manager does that? Well, well and, and that's what I put in. I was like, the amount of sandwich in his mouth seems like a plot point. It seems like <laughs> whoever was, Damon Lindelof was like, look, it's very important that you don't just have like a little tucked in your cheek. We need your mouth to literally be spilling over yeah. With food. Put so much food in your mouth that you almost start to gag. 
Like, you have to be able to say your lines, but I want you to be on the verge of, like, throwing your food back up. Right. If you throw up after we yell cut, you did it perfect. <laughs> That's exactly what we want. It, it did. It, it just seemed preposterous and ridiculous. And a lot of times, this stuff comes out at at a later point to be, like, an inside joke or something, you know? Like, yeah. I feel like this is the type of stuff where you realize in the behind the scenes, the guy's like... You know, give me a sandwich. Yeah. You know, yeah. I got a great joke. Right. You know. Um, and then the on, the only other person I could really think of to add to that list was um, the registration worker who gives Nora the guest badge. Yeah. She seems pretty like like she just really doesn't care at all <laughs> that she gave the wrong person uh, Nora's badge. Right. <laughs> and, she's and, just, and her suggestion is just everyone's in the mixer. Just go in there and find it. Right. <laughs> like, well, all right. Wouldn't you go make an announcement yeah, or something? Yeah, there's got to be some other way. Not only that, like, why are they not looking at people's IDs? Right. right. Isn't that the whole point of having somebody come in for and, and for registration? And, I mean, didn't she have to walk through the uh, pile of people handing out fake hand grenades and <laughs> screaming about the Pope to realize, like, one of your panelists had their badge stolen? So that probably means that somebody got in here who should not be in here. Right. Okay, this is one one other thing that I'm going to say, and I, I didn't realize this too. But look, this does go back to one of our hobby horses, back to episode one about the incompetence. So are we now to believe also that after the departure, that security has gone even more lax? <laughs> That's true. That you, know, you could have a, a conference on the most controversial subject ever ever and a panelist could come in and be like i don't know oh someone is posing as you who cares yeah you would think like no you'd be like this person could be dangerous we need to find this person out." or that there's somebody standing outside of the conference handing people dud grenades dud grenades yeah (laughs) and that's like that's what you do but you know nora's response to that i thought was really interesting yeah it's like she you could tell like this is some people do this like she didn't freak out. Yeah. She just like drops on the floor. It's like, yeah. yep, I've seen these before. Yeah, no, that her her reaction to that was great. Um, and you had written down here about being about her being shot. Yeah. In the Kevlar vest in yeah. the opening. So yeah. in the opening, she calls the prostitute. Prostitute shows up. So here, uh, here, here's my question. And again, I am. I do not claim to know. All right. Yeah. So anybody can feel free to. Just tell me I'm wrong. And you don't even have to know. I bet if you Google it, you'll find out <laughs> yeah. more information than I know. But here's my my thing. Would a shot to a Kevlar vest really knock you out? Would it knock you unconscious? Because all I know is from Jackass 2, I think, uh-huh. <laughs> where Johnny Knoxville gets shot. With like the beanbags, right? No, he he puts on the Kevlar vest oh, and, that's and he right. has he yeah. has somebody shoot him with a Kevlar right. in a Kevlar vest. Yeah. He gets shot and he immediately starts screaming. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, and it's a huge welt. I mean, I know that yeah. it hurts, but I just I, it made me think too of like all the times that film and television show somebody get shot with a Kevlar vest on, and you're immediately like, oh no, they got shot, they're dead, and then they peel open their shirt or whatever and they were wearing a vest and reveal it where i'm like in reality would those people really be screaming on the floor (laughs) like writhing around right yeah or would Nora really be peaceably like 
laying on her mattress mm. only to come to a few seconds right. later or would she be like ow ow yeah. Oh, yeah get out that's a good point yeah what, what what's your what's your initial feeling not knowing any more about about that stuff than i do do you think that's the the impact of that bullet on a kevlar vest is enough to knock you unconscious well, you know, I think I think you can chalk some of it up to her frame, you know, just because she's so small and thin or whatever. But no, I mean, first of all, isn't getting knocked out like a like a mental thing, right? Like if you get knocked out, that has something to do with your brain, right? Well, I don't see how getting shot in your stomach in a Kevlar vest is going to knock out your brain. <laughs> Maybe I just have a really bad understanding of how the human body works. Um, and there's some way that you said brain that makes you sound like you just <laughs> discovered what the brain was a week ago. I mean, I understand that it could knock her, knock the wind out of her. Yeah. Yeah. Like she'd be gasping. Right. You know, I mean, obviously it makes for a great button to have sure. her like gasp her breath and then go, go to the credit. So I understand for artistic reasons, but it does make me think if anybody wants to weigh in and, you know, maybe even reference, I, I watch a lot of film and television, so feel free to reference other times and blow my mind on other scenes yeah. where being knocked unconscious while wearing Kevlar vest came into play. And you're like, that's baloney. That's baloney. The other thing that I'll say, I guess, in my own defense or not, not in my defense, but to actually a play devil's advocate is uh, maybe it was the motion of her getting, you know, rocked back so mm -hmm. quickly snapping her head back maybe that did or maybe it's the heightened emotion of getting shot that it's such a tension field of filled event that mm -hmm. you know after you get shot that release it just kind of you know will daze you for a bit or yeah. knock you unconscious i don't even believe those theories so if somebody has to do better than that yeah another trope somewhat of a trope i don't know if this is a trope as much as it is sort of like a conceit of filming something mm -hmm. you know what i mean but I felt that the exchange between Nora and Kevin in the courthouse hallway was really good. I liked it. Yes. But at the same time, they're flirting with each other, like as they're both finalizing their divorces. You know what I mean? It just is like, seems like I just have a real issue with the timing of it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I feel like when someone gets divorced, it's going to take them a good least year or a couple years before they start dating again. And now I know that's not true for everybody, but I feel like if you're watching, I, it just seems weird how sped up the process is. You know what I mean? I understand that they're trying to get somewhere. I understand they're trying to tell a story, but at the same time, like nor is literally 30 seconds, uh, away from being divorced. Kevin's not even divorced yet. And now he's not even divorced. He's probably like what a day away from, like realizing that he's going to be divorced and he's already <laughs> flirting with this other woman. I mean, I guess he's already been shown to be a cheater, but it just seems like that's just something that kind of bothers me. Well, I, and I like how, um, in the previously on leftovers tag or whatever, one oh. scene that they show is Kevin being like, you want a divorce? You effing say it, you know? <laughs> and so it's like, you're going to this episode with Kevin screaming at the top of his lungs yeah. as, uh, soon to be ex-wife and now he's like on a sunday stroll yeah now he's down cool to get a divorce it. yeah you know he's down but yeah i thought that the, the their conversation was a great um demonstration of how nor has been affected by the loss because she's kind of able to have a normal conversation but yeah. at the same time she just 
I thought that I really liked that a lot. I, she was talking like a person who doesn't buy and throw away Lucky Charms you know, every two weeks. Yeah. At that point, I felt yeah. like. I was like, would she really be ready for a relationship? It seems like she has other things on her mind. But go yeah. for it, Nora. Sure. Do yeah. it. Yeah. You do you, Nora. Yeah. <laughs> um, And then one observation I had made during watching while watching the episode is there's a guy that tom noonan is sort of nursing along throughout the entire episode i love tom noonan yeah he's he's great yeah he's great um and this crying guy with a beard shows up a little bit earlier in the episode then he's in the elevator that nora tries to get into and then he's just randomly walking down the sidewalk as she's getting kicked out of the hotel and he's like good morning (laughs) it really gave me this impression that he was just like some guy that happened to be around set who was like really depressed, like doesn't know that a TV show is being filmed. Um, but then I found out through Reddit um, and I tweeted about it on our account because I, I would like to give the guy credit, but I don't have his, the guy, I don't have his name who posted this. That is the guy that punches Matt at the beginning of his episode and shoves paper in his mouth. Huh? Same guy. In New York? Mm-hmm. In Mapleton. Getting, getting, meeting with Tom Noonan. Yeah. Apparently getting hugged by Holy Wayne. Mm-hmm. Coming to grips. Yep. Huh. Same guy. So that's a little nice callback, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, and I just, I just heard that now. And I, and my initial thought is, is that a nice callback? Or is that a little too much? But yeah, I'll go I mean, with it, you. I'll go with you. Yeah, I, I think because it's not there's it's not that it's not made that big of a deal of. You know what I mean? Like yeah. Nora never recognized him. He never he's never given a name in either episode. You know what I mean? It just is kind of you know. He's okay now. Yeah, sure. He got he hugged it out. And, you know, like we said, Tom Noonan, right? Tom Noonan is great. What was Tom Noonan great in? Synecdoche, New York. I haven't seen that. Hmm. Last Action Hero. He was great. Yeah. He played Ripper, the bad That's guy. That's right. He uh, terrified me as a kid. Oh. Yeah. He he is a terrifying performer. I, yeah. I, I, I can say that. You should watch Synecdoche, New York. Yeah. Uh, and I have two more things. One of them, this was this is one of my, my favorite things from the episode. If you go back and you watch when Nora Durst calls out um, the truther on the panel. Yes. The truther stands up. She starts speaking. She says, um, she says, I'm not Nora Durst, whatever. Everyone gets silent. And then she says, I've been watching you and you are all blind. <laughs> and as soon as she says, you're all blind. There's literally one woman in the audience who goes, Oh, <laughs> and it just sounded like it sounded like she was really upset because she was either like looking forward to the panel it just sounded like she was genuinely upset about now missing this panel or that like i also got this idea that like maybe she's just constantly being interrupted by these truther people and she's just disappointed by it but there's just Leave one audible, yeah there's just one woman who's very audible and just she just goes oh like she's really <laughs> disappointed um what what do you i guess this i didn't write this one down but why do you think Nora was so you know, after the truther is exposed? She looks so like disappointed or upset. Yeah. And my feeling at first was like, did she have a whole like 
I feel like that was stage one mm-hmm. of Nora's plan to out this fake Nora Durst. Mm-hmm. And then when she was like, I'm not Nora Durst and does her thing. Nora seems so deflated. Like I was like, what was stage three? I wanted to know what was coming next. Yeah, that's true. That's, that, that's something I noticed too. I mean, I think maybe some of it is that she never like Nora never gets any recognition, right? Because she never says I'm Nora Durst. No exactly. one ever knows who she is. She just knows that that woman, they just know that that woman is not Nora Durst. Right. So I think that might be part of it, but I think that's a it's a good observation and she you definitely get the impression of like I mean, I think my impression too was like I didn't expect her to then be like I'm a truther blah 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 blah. Yeah. Like you expect Nora to be like I'm the real Nora Durst or you expect her to get some kind of recognition or right. You know what I mean? I like that. I guess a quick theory that, that I just thought of is, you know, it, it might, I guess thematically it fits in the sense of here's a great mystery that Nora was a part of trying to uncover mm-hmm. here. She is getting to the end of that mystery and the mystery turns out to be a truther. Yeah. And it's disappointing. And it feels like, again, an analogy for the entire show in terms of the departure, major event, major mystery, what's at the other end of it? What if it's as disappointing as, you know, this? It's just, you know, she's just a truther with the message. She saw Nora Durst's name. She just took it. Yeah. There's there's no purpose behind it. There's no, you know, intention. It was just this crazy lady with her crazy theories, yeah. you know? But is she crazy? Mm. Mm. Um, and real quick, I think that too, that speaks to like when there are interruptions like that, that becomes the focus of the event. Like that's what people end up talking about anyways. Right. Right. Like Google had, um, an event a few weeks ago or a month ago, maybe where they announced their whole new redesign for Android and all that. Yeah. But what people were talking about afterwards, um, were there were two people, there were two truthers that interrupted that conference and one person like just started stood up and started shouting like you're making machines that kill people or whatever. Like mm. I can't remember what they said, but you know, as, as that's what a lot of people were talking about afterwards. And it was kind of like, I think that's what ends. I think that's a, it's a good sort of way to end that scene because that's what people end up talking about anyways. Yeah. Um, and the last thing I had written down and I hope this is the end of it is that Kevin and Nora have had two meaningful exchanges, right? This is not counting the one, in the dry cleaners, but they've had two exchanges where they kind of really start. They, they progress the sort of relationship, right? Yeah. The first one is in the high school hallway. And the second one is at the end of this episode. And both of them close with terrible, like bury my face in a pillow lines. (laughs) Right. And the first one is, when um, Nora asks Kevin if he's why'd he cheat and he was said something like, I don't, is there a good answer to that? Right. That's where you end the scene. Is there a good right. answer to that? That's where you end it. But instead Nora then goes, I think I just heard it. And it's like, Oh, you just <laughs> killed it. Right. Yikes. Um, yeah. And then at the end of this one, they have this good exchange in front of the house. And then Kevin ends it by saying, you should know I'm an effing mess. Right. And first of all, it's like, guess what, Kevin? Everyone knows that. Right. That's not a revelation, buddy. Like everyone sees it. 
but it just is like why like it just it's it's a little ham-handed right it's a little too on the nose right um i like ham-fisted ham-fisted yeah sure uh but and i also wanted to say and this is something too that also applies to marcus i'm very purposefully choosing not to say the f word on our podcast for two reasons the first one is because i don't use it in my everyday discourse with people i feel like it's a little bit of an aggressive word and it can sort of throw things off you know Mm -hmm. what i mean the second one is because i want to try and counterbalance all of the f words that kevin and now marcus use in the actual show and it's like marcus's first when he first appears he hits almost worse than kevin where it's like every other word is the f word it's just like who's writing like who talks like this like I live in Potty the mouth. I live in the real world. I talk to people in the real world, and I, I very rarely hear the f word in my everyday. You know what I mean? And I work with like laborers, right? <laughs> right. I was a laborer for a while. Right. Like, it just doesn't happen. That was my. That's my gre- That's my one grievance. My, that's my one well, real grievance with the show. I I like you know. I'm choosing not to because I'm thinking of the 10-year-old listener out there <laughs> sure. who's watching this show yeah, and uh, just just is looking for some good, clean commentary sure, yeah. on what he's watching to help, help him piece it together. So for that little sweet 10-year-old out there who doesn't know what to make of the leftovers, he's turning <laughs> to me. Don't worry. Uncle Keith has got you. I'll take care of you. Sure. Um. That sounded creepy and obscene. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess that's it. You don't have any. You didn't have any more. Well, I guess there's one more that I don't really want to talk about on here just for length. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess maybe I'll, I'll try and write something to, sure. to post on our on our blog. And that is, you know, kind of dealing out the idea. The other thing that I thought about was, you know, is Damon Lindelof potentially providing a little commentary on people who write about grief mm-hmm. and publish it, you know, and that's something that I've thought about before. Um, oh, because of the author storyline, you mean? Right, right. Be- because yeah. of the author storyline and, and how he's pegged as being a phony. And yeah. I think there is something about, you know, Nora has a problem. I think anybody would have a problem, right. With him saying, I went through this tragedy you need to read my book. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, why? You know, just because you went through that tragedy, what are you, what are you getting out of it, or what is it serving you? Right. You know. Well, I think, and I think the sort of, I think the subtext to that too, to that scene too, or to Nora's point was that he wouldn't have been able to write the book if he wasn't grieving Ex- anymore. Exactly. Right? exactly. And, and, and so and, once he was healed by Wayne, he could write the book. And, and that's exactly, that's exactly my point. That I think is interesting is Damon Lindelof seems to kind of be saying, or the scene kind of, the scene seems to be saying something along the lines of someone truly feeling grief cannot write a book um, about that grief. Only when you have worked through that grief mm-hmm. can you then look back and and produce something out of it, you know, or be okay maybe with it being published because there is, we've talked about this before, the ego that's involved 
in anybody publishing anything. Mm-hmm. You know, you need to read what I'm what I went through. You need to read this. Well, why? You know, it's like because, well, because I'm a good writer. You know, or whatever. Ego comes involved. You know, be, be becomes involved. Mm. So I don't know. I guess I wanted to write a little piece, you know, discussing that a bit. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I agree with that or not. Well, wait until you read well, what yeah, I have to that's say. True. That's true. I would just say. I would just say quickly. What I'm thinking of are books like. Well, well I think first of all, I would say is when you lose a loved one that that's close that's close and i'm sure the 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 uh i'm sure the leftovers will deal with this to some extent do you ever stop grieving do you ever get over it i mean i think that's an important question right and from my perspective i would say no right um you know but then but then you're also i you know well I'll, i'll let you you know i'll let you work that out but i think it's definitely an interesting question but you know there are books like um, Dave Eggers' book, uh, "Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius," right. something like that, yeah, which is a really good book. And I was also thinking of uh, "The Long Goodbye," right? Who I, what is the lady's name? She writes for um, Slate, but it was also a, a a really good book, and it's about you know grief, grieving her, her about her mother dying. Yeah, I've I've read some books too, and I just find it an interesting um idea and and again i think this is what what the show is kind of presenting in that because nora you you think about you know nora sees him as a fraud because of how he's constructively turning his loss right you know and it's like what he says is kind of you know he uses a, a word ambiguous loss which gets on her nerves yeah but that's that's a very like intellectual way to approach it it's not that that's a wrong way to to approach it because that does summarize what happened you suffered an ambiguous loss where did the people go what do you have left you know you could work with that yeah but she freaks out at that because it's a it's an intellectual scholarly word to represent something very real and raw you know and so he's intellectualizing this as somebody who experienced it and that's her problem and i feel like that's an interesting commentary if you want to apply that to grief literature, you yeah. know, and what are you trying to accomplish with what you're writing and, and with the grieving process, you know? Yeah. All right. Well, that'll do it for, uh, for this week's show. Um, like I said earlier, we started an official Twitter for the site. We had someone um, tweet at us and was like, because we've just been giving out our personal accounts. <laughs> Someone <laughs> tweeted at us and we're just like, eh, your personal accounts are a little random. Random. Why don't you just do a thing for the show? So we did. And after reading that, I kind of realized, yeah, our personal accounts don't really correlate with the show that much. <laughs> with this show <laughs> or with our other podcasts. They kind of are used for different things. But with that being said, you can follow our official Twitter account. For the show and anything else that our website is doing, at Brown Blue White, um, and like I said, I'll I will use that to to post you know links for different things I find throughout the week, um, any you know random thoughts I'm having, or if I just feel like sort of indiscriminately um, uh, threatening Keith right. with random Google images. <laughs> 
that come from the leftovers, some of the episodes. But be ready because you might delete those. That's <laughs> very true. Sometimes that's his tweets true. will come that's and go. The, that's the one thing you have to get used to on any of my social media accounts is sometimes they don't last very long. He's a fickle fickle tweeter. Yeah. So, like I said, follow our our account at Brown Blue White and tweet at that account and we'll, you know, get back to you, answer any yeah. questions. If you have any ideas or whatever, let us know and, and, you know, we'll get them into the show. Uh, and you can also follow our personal accounts, which I think are very funny, right? They may be a little random or whatever, but... Oh, we got called out. I think I, there's a point, right? I had to take stock. <laughs> yeah. Um, you can follow me. I am at Blizzard with nine Zs. And Keith... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change it to Fickle Tweeter. Now. Sure. I'm sure that's taken. There's no way that's not taken. Really? Yeah, that has to be. What about Fecal Tweeter? I'm... That was probably taken before Fickle. <laughs> uh, okay, maybe Freckle Tweeter then. Uh, something, I'll get close. Um, yeah. I'm at things come right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so until uh, until uh, next week, we'll... Uh, I, don't even, I don't ever know what to say. Until next week, what? Until then, see you then. Until, you know what I mean? I need to stop saying until. Right. Right? Say, but then what do I say? All right, sayonara. see you next week. But then I'm not seeing anybody, right? Take care. Take care.